This afternoon we will start with part two of Daniel chapter 12. And part two deals with the second dialogue that uh, David had for the angels with Jesus. So let's just ask the Lord to bless us. Heavenly Father, we ask you to fill us with your Holy Spirit and may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, our Savior and Redeemer. Amen. Most of the misunderstanding has to do with the second part. And the idea of a number of years ago, uh, in fact, uh, when I was in Korea as a missionary, there were some uh, American missionaries, self-supporting missionaries coming over and giving us new light. And the new light is, yes, we understand that uh, the 1260, 1290, and 335 days had been fulfilled as a prophetic time, but now the new light is that it is also fulfilled in literal days. And it was quite a new, I mean, I had heard something like that in the early days of the Advent movement in the 1840s, late 40s and whatever, when fanaticism came into the church, but not later on. And, uh, you know, when I observed this, it was really amazing how the new interpretations caused a revival among the student body of Samuel University, which is really our largest university that we have in the world. Presently, it has about 6,000 students. And, uh, you know, that has given me some interesting uh, study time and uh, the uh, Biblical Research Institute in, uh, of our church, and I am a member of the uh, Biblical Research Committee that will meet twice, twice a year. And in, uh, very soon we will meet again in Loma Linda University and another times we will meet at Andrews University. And we will study some of the new insights and uh, I got this information specifically from Dr. Vandel, Gerard Vandel, who is a member, a retired member now of that organization. And he gave some interesting insights that I will share with you here also. So now here, the second dialogue, and that is Daniel 12, verse 8 through 11. And the idea is here that yes, uh, those prophecies has been fulfilled prophetically in the past, but now have a secondary fulfillment of little time. So yes, it was fulfilled prophetically in 1844 and 1843 and 1798, but now we have seen it again. And that is it here. Daniel chapter 12, verse 8. Daniel wrote, although I heard, I did not understand. Remember the first dialogue, Jesus was going to explain in a specific way the time prophecy of time, time, and half a time in relation to when the time of the end begins. Daniel heard this, but he says, I heard, but I did not understand. So Daniel talks now to Jesus, the man of linen. And Daniel said, my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? You know, the end of what? Observation. Daniel asked Jesus for further clarification about the time of the end. He earnestly wants to know when the time of the end will arrive so the book will be unsealed, because Daniel saw that it was crucial importance. And here now Jesus, the man of linen, again replies in terms of the time of the end. So undoubtedly it is all related to the time of the end. Here is what Jesus says in verse 9. And he says, Go your way, Daniel, 
for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. So Jesus, you know, no matter Daniel, what you want to know, go your way, it's sealed. Don't bother me anymore. You see the point? So twice then, the first time, it refers to the time of the end, and now again when Daniel says, yes, I don't understand, please explain it to me. Again, Jesus says, go your way, mind your business, Daniel, for the words are closed. And closed to what? Sealed to the time of the end. And now Jesus gives a time prophecy. And so both the time, time and half a time and the 1290 are associated with how to determine the time of the end. They are sealed. The wise will understand, Jesus says. Many shall be purified and made white and tried, but the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. So think about it here. What does it really mean to me today? Observation. Those who are wise shall understand these prophecies. And that, I think, is a rebuke to some of us because uh, how many of us understand this prophecy? And if we don't understand this, then we certainly are not being, you know, put together with the wise. Daniel 11. Jesus prophesied, and from the time that the daily and sacrifice basically in your Bible is in italics because this has been added because of the interpreters. But it really, the literal thing is the daily or the continual or the regular is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up. There shall be 1,290 days. So it is 30 days beyond the first time prophecy, which is the 1260. <coughs> but the first time prophecy of the 1260 was dealing with the end, when the scattering of and the persecution of God's people will be finished, then the time of the end. You see the point? Here it starts with the beginning of this period. When does the 1290 begin? And so from the time that the daily is, is taken away and the abomination of desolation set up so it has to do with the beginning, there shall be 1290 days. So this period has 30 days beyond the 1260. Now if both prophecies of Jesus end with the time of the end. The first one deals with the end. This deals with the beginning of this period. It indicates then that both this prophecy and the previous prophecy are coming till the same end. So therefore, this means that this prophecy starts 30 days beyond or before the 1260. You see the point? See, if both of them end with the time of the end, and the 30, and one of this 30 days longer, then the, this one needs to become 30 days earlier. The one deals with the end of the persecution, this deals with the beginning of the persecution. The beginning of the establishment of what? The abomination of desolation. And from other parts of the and chapter 7 and chapter 8 and chapter uh, 11, we find in the book of Daniel that the abomination of desolation is the papacy. And so let us now see here the abomination of desolation. So this is the beginning of the papacy. The other one is the end, the deadly root of the papacy. And what I now share is something that our pioneers had no difficulty understanding, but today I think many of us don't fully understand it. So the 1260 and the 1290, they are together, and the point of unification is the end. 
both predict the time of the end. The 1290 deals with the second up, second, the, 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 the second up of the abomination of desolation. So again, Jesus gives a time prophecy in the time of the little horn, in terms of the little horn, that indicates when the time of the end will begin. Now his answer is not given as 1260 days, but 1290 days. While the 1260 day prophecy brings out that the time of the end is to be at the end of the 1260 year period of persecution, the 1290 day prophecy focuses on the time when the papal abomination began to set up. So the one deals with the end, and then is the time of the end. This is the beginning, and from the beginning of the setting up, there will be 1290, and ending of the same time. The same time, time of the end. The time of the end begins in the second dialogue, 1290 years after the beginning of the setting up of the abomination of desolation. And I hope that this is, becomes clear because, I mean, unless you see the difference between the two dialogues, you get confused. So the relationship of the 1260 to the 1290. <coughs> the association of the 1260 as well as the 1290 prophetic days is to be the time of the end. And that shows that both periods terminate at the time of the end, which is 1798. And so if that is true, then you calculate backwards if these periods end at the time, at the same date, it means that 1290 became 30 years before the beginning of the 1260 years, which would then be in the year 508. The one is, and so here then the 1290 starts with 508, the 1260 with Justinian starts then in the year 538. Both end then in 1798. Both are the clue to when the time of the end began, when the unsealing, that is the big issue. When is the unsealing? And the unsealing is at the time of the end. Is that somewhat clear now? Yes. Okay. And otherwise you have to go back to uh, <laughs> the recordings and whatever. So if, you know, this is what you have to clearly uh, understand. And actually some of the reformers uh, you know, we're saying that both the 1290 and 1260 refer to the time of the end and they have to be ending at the time. But the reformers didn't know the beginning, neither the end. And so from the Reformation time, it took an, again 300 days more to setting time. And finally, you know, and, and they were saying, when does the deadly wound come? When does it come? And year after year after year passed. And they didn't until the Pope was taken captive. So you need to have two important points. So then you become calculating backwards. And you come 508. And they in the, during the French Revolution and prior to this, this was a focus of attention. What happened in 508? Is there any important thing is that helped the papacy getting into its power and whatever? And yet there is something very, very significant. What happened in 508 A.D.? The question is, what events transpired in the year 508 that could be interpreted as the taking away of the daily or continual and the setting up of the abomination of desolation? What is there? And it wasn't not for the great controversy tours that I had year after year after year. I would have never found the importance of this year, but that has to do with on the last day of our tour, we become there in Rams, and uh, there is something very important in this year 508. And what is there? The beginning of the 1290 years. The year 508 involves a significant event in the life of Clovis, the pagan king of the Franks. And there is now a majestic cathedral built there to commemorate 
the whole line of the Frank kings, starting with Clovis. First of all, Clovis became the first of the ten pagan kingdoms that had divided the Roman Empire. To, he, was, he was then to be baptized into the Roman Catholic faith. So of the ten nations, France was the first one that pledged allegiance to the Catholic faith. And he was the first king who then uh, was, became, became a an, an, an servant of the Catholic Church. <coughs> it's interesting, he had married Clotilde. Clotilde is a an, is an, uh, uh, an, an saint in the Catholic Church. And she married Clovis. But as a good wife, you know, you pray for your unconverted husband. And this is what she did, year after year after year. And Clovis was not convinced that he should accept the faith of his wife until there was a powerful battle against the Alemanni. And Clovis was very successful in conquering nation after year, nation. But this time things didn't work out and went against him. And so when he saw the confusion among his forces, he suddenly said, you know, unless God intervenes, I'm going to lose it. And he had his hand up to heaven and said, God of Clotilde, unless you give me the victory, and until you give me the victory, I will be a servant of yours, faithfully doing everything what you want me to do. And what happened? The fate of the soldiers was strengthened. The whole battle changed in his favor. And he won against the Alemanni, which are the Germans. And so, as when he came back, he told his wife of the promise that he must make. And as a good wife, what do you do? You go to the pastor. So he went to, she went to the uh, archbishop and, uh, or the bishop uh, Remy uh, from the city of Rams, not too far from Paris. And uh, so what did he do? He organized Bible studies. What are Bible studies at the time? You memorize our father. And at the same time, you believe in all the Catholic creeds, and that's what you do. Then you be baptized. And so that is what happened. <coughs> he is being baptized here. And uh, he is naked because at the time, you know, when you were baptized, you had to be naked. All your old life you, you, you used to throw out, and then you'd be here in the baptistry, and here is the on the right hand, you find an Remy, and on the left hand, his wife, and he becomes a Christian. He is the first one of the ten kingdoms that uh, accepted the Catholic faith. And through France, kingdom after kingdom after kingdom was conquered and put into the basket of the Catholic Church. Here is the majestic church that is devoted also the uh, cathedral of Saint-Rémy, that is the bishop, it's, it's nearly the same size as the uh, Notre-Dame de Paris, the Paris the cathedral that was uh, recently uh, had damage, major damage because of a fire, as you probably well know. And so here then, this is then the <coughs> thing, here is then the front, the facade, and very, you see here, uh, the bishop, and beside the bishop in the middle, you see Clovis, again in a naked position, in a small baptistry. And that is in the facade of this church. And so you can see here how important the role of Clovis is. In fact, uh, uh, Pope John Paul II made a special trip a number of years ago to commemorate the uh, centennial of the baptistry of Clovis. Secondly, 
what happened in 508. Uh, Clovis ended the first papal war with a victory over the Visigoths that eliminated the military resistance of the non-Catholic Aryan powers to the Catholic faith. So then that was the... So here then, France became then the key to defeat all the other ten kingdoms and incorporate them in the Catholic faith. So you can see here how important France becomes in the rise of Catholicism. In the same year, Clovis received the title of consul from Emperor Anastasia, the highest title, title in the Roman Catholic Empire after that of the emperor, emperor. So you can see here how important the role of Clovis becomes. Then from this time on, Catholicism was to dominate the Christian world with the nation of France as its right arm in the battle for supremacy over the Christian world. And so here then, power after power after kingdom after kingdom after kingdom was conquered by France and incorporated in the Catholic thing. So from now on then, uh, Western Europe becomes then completely Catholic and uh, there is no other room for any other religion than Catholicism. Uh, I showed you here this uh, book here by uh, Jean Carlos Zagowski. He is a doctoral. He was a doctoral student of mine, and he wrote the key element here on 508. It says here the role and status of the Catholic Church in the church-state relationship within the Roman Catholic Empire from 306 to 814. He covers the whole thing in over a period of about 500 years. Now, the reason before that we looked on the year 508, what happened there, but we didn't see the whole significance until we took an, a view, a long-range view over 500 years, what is so unique to this year. And he discovered something very, very important. Clovis established a new church-state relationship in which the old pagan church-state relationship with the, within the Roman Empire, where the emperor ruled the church, pope and bishops, was replaced by a new church relationship. So the old one was, for example, when, when Constantine accepted the Catholic faith, who was in power? Constantine. He told the church what to do. He came up with the ideas and Yes, the Pope, you know, and all the, you know, I mean, we, you kept being made. Before that, they were persecuted. And now, because of Constantine, they were put, the red carpet was laid up, and now they had a beautiful place in the church. But still, the emperors were in control. The emperors ruled, and the church did what the emperors wanted. And that went on until 508. 508, things changed. There was a new church relationship where King Clovis ruled on an equal basis with the church, the clergy. So in other words, before that it was here the emperor and the church did its bidding. Now the church was placed on an equal footing. Equal footing. The bishops made the decisions and recommendations. They gave it to the emperor, no, the, 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 the king, and the king put those things into place. So you get here an equal basis, that is a new thing. And later on, 300 years later under Charlemagne, what do you get now? Then you get a struggle. Who is more powerful? Charlemagne was made, anointed as, as emperor by the Pope. And then the question is, who is now more powerful? the one who is going to be anointed as emperor, or the one who does the anointing, you see? And that was a powerful struggle. And during the, uh, the year 1000 to uh, 1400, it was the Pope who ruled everything. And so then you can see here, this, this change is, is, is very, 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 very important. And so that, took place then, and very short here, okay, in 508, 
can therefore be seen as the beginning of the setting up of the abomination of desolation, the papacy that replaced paganism and through Christianity. Because what, what, what the church did, the papacy is, they replaced paganism because paganism was greatly be, be wiped out. But at the same time, through Christianity, primitive Christianity was also perverted. So both paganism and through Christianity came then be replaced by the abomination of desolation. And therefore it is very important for us to understand what the abomination of desolation is. Now, 30 years later, what do we see here? This is the San Vitale in Ravenna. Again, every year I visited this here. And here you find a mosaic, the only mosaic in the world that reveals the picture of Justinian. Justinian the emperor. And what does Justinian the emperor do? Here he is in the beautiful ornate of purple and beside him is the, the uh, general Belisarius. Those two uh, individuals are very, very important. In 533 AD, Emperor Justinian legalized the dominant power of the papacy by acknowledging the position of the papacy as the head of all over all the Christian churches and incorporating this view into his newly revised Codex Justinianus, a major revision of Roman Catholic law, of, of Roman pagan law that influenced Christendom for over 1,000 years. So here now the role and position of the papacy is now incorporated in Roman law until the French Revolution. Here you find the revised law code of Justinian, those five major books. And there is a letter that Justinian wrote to the Pope acknowledging that he was the head of all the churches. And not only the head of the churches, but the corrector of heresy. So in other words, who is in charge of the faith? The Pope. And if you depart from the faith, that is heresy. And what is then the result? The emperor and the people that support him will then take care of the heresies and the heretics. Five years later, in 538, Justinian's general Belisarius implemented this law in Rome after he defeated the Ostrogoths and brought the city of Rome again under the jurisdiction of the Catholic Roman Empire. So in 533, the law was made, but it has no effect because Italy was in the hands not of Rome, not of the Justinian, but was in the hands of the Ostrogoths. And it was not until Rome was liberated that the law of 533 could be implemented. And that is, makes 538 so important. You find now the implementation of this. Here is the law. And this is the general Belisarius who defeated the Ostrogoths. So we both have seen now the importance of 508 and 538 in the rise of Catholicism. Now what have we have to do here? And you can see here how important this is. What is now the blessings at the end of the 1335 days? Daniel 12, verse 12. Jesus concluded his explanation and says, Blessed is he who waits and comes to the 1335 days. So there is a very special blessing. So what is now the blessing? When is the end of the 1335 years? Observation. Because the 1335 days immediately follow the 1290, 
it is obvious that both periods are intimately connected. This means that both periods must have the same beginning, namely 508. And at the end of the 1335 years is then 45 years beyond 1798 and extends to 1843. Here you see then the prophetic picture. You see then the connection between the 1290 and the 30, uh, uh, 1290 and the 1260. Both end in 1798. The one starts in 538 and the other one is 508. So let us then look at 1335 uh, and 1290. Both have the same beginning, but 1290 ends in 1798. The 1335 days goes 45 years beyond it, 1843. Here you see the beautiful harmony of these prophetic significant days dealing, all of those have to deal with the papacy. And so in 508, the first of the ten horns, the Franks, uses the sword to expand the power of the papacy. Paganism is being replaced by the papacy. Then in 538, papacy established as the head of the Catholic Church, the only recognized religion in Europe. So keep that in mind. The only religion. You don't have any other religion. Then, 1798, Franz, the eldest son of the papacy, he, it was called the eldest son, takes up the sword against the papacy, inflicting the deadly wound. You see here this, the, 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 the two center of, of 1290. In the beginning of 508, Franz takes the sword in behalf of the papacy. In 1798, Franz takes the sword to terminate Papacy. See how beautiful all this, all those things work. Yeah. Now, what is the blessing in 1843? You know, observation about the events in 1843. It was during 1840, 1831, and 1844 that the Great Second Advent Movement proclaimed the first angel's message. When the churches throughout Christendom rejected this message. Then the second angel's message was launched, announcing the fall of Babylon. So keep in mind, before 1844 and 1843, Babylon could be healed. But Babylon was not healed. And so what happened then, that the Protestant church, before that, Babylon was already associated with the Catholic Church in the Reformation. They rejected the doctrines of the Reformation, the biblical doctrines, but now, the Protestant churches, what did they do? They spoke against the Advent message, rejected the Advent message, and now the Protestant churches made a moral fall. They became a part of Babylon. Keep that in mind. You know, many of our people don't even realize this, but because of the position that they took and rejected the Advent movement, in 1844, they became a part of Babylon. So what happened now? Further, now the call, come out of her, my people, began to be proclaimed, calling God's people out of Babylon into the prophetic remnant. See? You see, if Babylon is fallen, where should God's people go? And the Lord provided the possibility to the rescue of the remnant church. Now the remnant church was established and now there is a safe haven for all God's people. It's the remnant. It's a tremendous blessing. What is the blessing of 1843? It was in 1843 that the remnant church of prophecy came into existence. Those who were alive at the time and par par participated in the second Advent movement received the special blessing Jesus promised at the end of Daniel chapter 12. Daniel 12, prophecy of the 1335 days, 
culminated in 1843. It is one of the two biblical passages that refers specifically to the preciousness of the early Advent experience. Both the book, eating the book in, 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 in uh, Revelation 12, 10, and, Revela and Daniel 12, focus now on the experience of the remnant church. So you can see here how important this prophecy is. That introduces people to the fall of Babylon. And where now is a safe haven? In the remnant church. What is the blessing in 1843? Here is Ellen White. She speaks very interestingly. Ellen White describes her experience in the Advent movement during the year before the great disappointment as the happiest year of my life. Testimonies, volume 1, page 54. And if you read all her testimonies after 1844, yes, she is a prophet, but she was a prophet that frequently was not accepted. And she had difficulty and pain as a result of this. But in 1843, the year 1843, 1844, there was a unity of believers. A tremendous revival took place. And this message went all over the world in this one or two years. And so that was a fantastic experience. What is the blessing in 1844 and beyond? Observation. In this light, it is helpful to remember that those who participated in the proclamation of the angels' messages were to receive a special blessing. They were part of the special resurrection promised to those who have died without Jesus, seeing Jesus at the second advent. Great Controversy, page 637. And the ending of here, you find this prophetic panorama beautifully portrayed. You see here what happened in 508, 538, 1798, all kinds of milestones in the plan of salvation. And then 48, 1848, the blessing of participating in the Second Advent Movement, the prophetic remnant. So the prophetic remnant was created in 1843 prior to 1844, ending of the 30, 35 years, the end of the 30, 35 days. Ellen White says the 13 and 35 days had ended in letter 28, 1850. Uriah Smith, writing the commentary on Daniel Revelation, says in 1335, it ended in 1843. What is the promised blessing in 1843? Uriah Smith wrote, the blessed experience of participating in the Second Advent Movement. Ellen May says, this was the happiest year of my life. And the newer views have increased this and says the blessings of being this in the special resurrection. Daniel 12, verse 2, Revelation 14, verse 13, and Great Controversy 6, 37. And so you can see here how beautiful it is, but presently very few of our own church members understand this or share this. How shall Daniel stand in his lot? The prophecy is not yet finished. Daniel 12, 13. But go thy way, Daniel, till the end of the till the end be. For thou shalt rest and stand in thy lot at the end of the days. Now, modern translations have not focused on stand in thy lot, but stand in thy inheritance. Uh, you know, as a promise that uh, Daniel will be a part of the resurrection. <coughs> but how did Daniel stand in his lot? The Hebrew word for lot is casting lots. And when Joseph, when, when Joshua started to enter into what? Into the promised land, what did they do? They cast lots. It's the same Hebrew word there. They cast lots 
And so as a result of this casting of lots, their portion was determined where they would end up. Now think about the whole thing of the investigative judgment. Jesus goes over the books, and because of the investigation of all those names, Daniel will be standing in his lot. He will not fall in the judgment, but he will stand. Two views on Daniel standing in his lot. It refers to the inheritance, that's what you find in more the newer translations, or it refers to the, the decisions in the judgment. See, everything what Jesus sees there, and when all the millions and billions of angelic beings see the investigative judgment, then there will be decisions made. People will either be accepted and sealed, or rejected and not sealed. So you can see here how the whole thing, whole picture works out beautifully here. How did Daniel stand in his lot at the end? The understanding of the Adventist pioneers? Daniel shall stand in his lot in the decisions of the investigative judgment of the righteous dead. That's what the Adventist pioneers believed. And this is confirmed by Ellen White. Affirms the investigative judgment in page 488 of Great Controversy. Daniel will pass the judgment, he will stand. It's the assurance that Jesus gives him, you will stand in the judgment. At the same time, she gives a new insight. It includes also the prominent role of Daniel's prophecies during the time of the end. Fourth Bible Commentary, page 1174. So in other words, the book of Daniel will be highlighted in a unique experience in the end of days. And you will see that you cannot even accept the Advent message without understanding Daniel. Daniel 7, Daniel 8, and Daniel 12. Now, for a number of decades, people have said, yeah, and we believe it, but at the same time, there is another explanation. There is a little explanation. All those dates are literally fulfilled. 1290 days, little days. It's not prophetic dates. So they have a dual fulfillment. Now let me tell you, friends, that this is rejected by the Advent pioneers because many people in the other churches did also speak about a dual fulfillment. You know, Daniel, the 2300 days, yes, it had a fulfillment in Tychus Epiphanes, little fulfillment, but then, year day principle, it's a year day principle fulfillment. William Miller says, no, it's not put on, it is clearly only one fulfillment. And that is what we always have maintained until recently, where some other Adventists said, yeah, but you know, those are the year day principle and we believe it. But now in the future, we get again a little fulfillment. And as a result, friends, our people get confused. And they are looking now in the future on a little fulfillment. Now, is it the future? Let us see what it is. Some interpreted time prophecies of the 1260, 1290, and 1335 as little days, not prophetic days, to interpret it with the Yiddish principle. He says, no, it's a literal fulfillment. They claim support from Ellen White, who says, who wrote that the 335 days have not yet ended. Now, here is an interesting way how people interpret some of her statements. In a letter from 1850, Ellen White writes concerning Brother Hewitt. We told him of some of his errors in the past, that the 335 days were ended, and numerous errors of his. It had but little effect, his darkness was felt upon the meeting, and it dragged. Ellen White, Manuscript Releases, Volume 6, page 251. Now, if you read this statement like this, it seems that he had a number of errors, including that the 35 days were ended. Now, if you read it like this, yeah, you know, and numerous errors. Now, the question is, 
she says about some of his errors in the past. Then she says that the 30 to 35 days were ended and numerous errors of this. So she talks about errors, then she makes a definite statement about the 30 to 35 days, and other errors. So why does she put this statement, 30 to 35 days? Did she there pay that? Now she, this was, she was in her early 20s, she wrote this. And let us see here. Some view this statement that Ellen White put the 30 to 30 literal days to be fulfilled in the future. Now, if this is true, then we have a problem with Ellen White. Because many times she says that prophetic time is past. It's past, it's in the past. So how can she then, you know, okay, so let's, let's see. Here is the first statement. We told him of some of his errors in the past, that the 30 to 35 days were ended, and numerous errors of his. Now this is what we have generally interpreted. We told him of some of his errors in the past. We told him that the 30 to 35 days were ended, and we told him numerous errors of his. Now, if that is so, then the 35 days were ended will not necessarily mean one of his errors. At the same time, when she wrote this, James White, Uriah Smith, Andrews, Bates, Edson, they all believed that the days were ended. I wrote another uh, study on the time prophecies here in the early period of our history. And you see that the 35 days was constantly used to explain maybe now Jesus is coming, maybe that, then Jesus is coming, maybe the next year is coming. And all the time, the 35 days were used all the time. So, if she is correct that it is in the future, otherwise we must ask why Ellen White reprimanded Brother Hewitt and not her husband and all the other pioneers who thought that the 35 years were ended. See? She never rebukes any of her pioneers. And then Uriah Smith came out with Daniel and Revelation commentary clearly in the whole chapter on this kind of thing. And she never says anything. The only statement that she made about the 30 to 35 days, literally, you know, what, what people have interpreted, is the end statement. So, but not only this. And this was from Gerard Fondel in the True Perspectives, uh, Prophecies of Daniel 12. The new interpretation of the literal days in Daniel 12 in the future is against Ellen White's opposition to time setting. What does she say about time setting? In 1880, she wrote, I have borne the testimony since the passing of the times in 1844 that there should be no definite time setting by which to test God's people. The great test on time was in 1843 and 1844, and all who have set time since this great period, marked in prophecy, were deceiving and being deceived. See, those, so those who continue setting time beyond 1844, she says, are deceiving and being deceived. Very, very clear. And I've seen, when I was in Korea, how suddenly this whole university, you know, was getting excited about some things in regard to the Pope. And what happened now? Nothing. And still people are continuing to set time based on this. You see? So therefore I think it is be, we should be very, very careful in using that statement that she made in continuity, because it's... It, it, it takes away of the glory of Daniel 12. Here is a prophecy that deals with God's people, God's remnant. And if you stand this, you get a tremendous blessing. We are God's remnant. See? 
And all the other ones, you focus on the future, all kinds of things in the future, and that is, brings only confusion. And it has brought confusion among us. And so, friends, Ellen White referred to the great disappointment of 1844 as the passing of time. Any time prophecies beyond 1844 to be fulfilled yet in the future is futurism. Where from futurism does it come from? From the evangelicals. We are on an evangelical bandwagon. And we confuse our own beautiful message. I tell you, Revelation, Daniel 12 should be used as one of our Bible studies, together with Revelation 10, that nails down in history that we are a prophetic movement and that Babylon has fallen and the only hope for humanity and Christianity is the Advent movement. And so why should we dilute this beautiful day, beautiful picture? Friends, this is, I hope, of help to some of you. If you still have questions, uh, see me afterwards and uh, I will be willing to study with you the Bible here and whatever. But I only draw your attention to what has been neglected. And Ellen Knight made one statement. She says, from many of our pulpits, we will hear the false proclamation of prophecy. Not a few, no, with many, from many of our pulpits, the fire of false prophecy. And I don't feel that you should be a part of it. And we should hear the clear thing. Now, you know, you may not have gotten all everything together, but study this, study this. And read specifically, you know, Uriah Smith, his chapter on Daniel uh, 12, uh, Haskell, James White. And here I have my book on the foundations of the Seventh-day Adventist message and mission. And you find here the whole development from 1844 onwards. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.